Morning. Somebody beat me to the punch. I love that. Good morning to you. That's awesome. You know, when it comes to, uh, we're in this series called Don't Get on the Ride. I know we took a break last week. We're going to wrap it up with uh, what we're talking about here today. Because I wanted to talk about a, a ride that many of us get on, this roller coaster that many of us get on. Some of us have been on it for a very long time. Some of us, it's all too familiar. Others of us, we haven't been, but we will be. And it's just easy to get on. And that roller coaster, my friends, is called shame, right? This is the thing. And then you get on it and it takes you for a ride. And I want to unpack that together today. You know, years ago, a man was in my office. Um, he didn't just magically appear there. He set a meeting with me and we were having a conversation together and he was so angry. He came in, jaw clenched, just all kinds of energy, you know, talking pretty loudly, so frustrated. And it's because his marriage was ending. Uh, his wife had come to him and said, I want a divorce. He didn't want one. He wasn't okay with this. He was so angry. And at one point the conversation shifted and all of a sudden it's like the anger shifted into this kind of sadness. And he looked at me and he goes, Ryan, do you know what she told me when I asked her why? And I said, no, how would I know that? I like, no, what'd she say? And he looked at me and he said, she said, I'm not attracted, I'm just not attracted to you anymore. And then it was like all the air deflated out of him. It was as he looked down at the ground and he said something. I don't know if he meant to say it to me. I don't know if he was just saying it aloud to himself, but he just said, I just don't know why I'm not enough, right? That's the phrase that he used. And in that moment, whether he realized it or not, he had gotten on a shame roller coaster <laughs> and it was taking him for a ride. There was another moment where a woman scheduled a meeting with me and I had no idea what the meeting was supposed to be about. I'd never met her before. Uh, she didn't tell me. And so she came in and I noticed when she came in and I was trying to introduce myself to her and her to me, she never looked me in the eyes, not a single time. Like we never made eye contact, which isn't normally how those moments go. And so I'm starting to talk with her and, and I still can't figure out why we're here. Like, what is she needing? And she goes and sits down and she goes, I just, I wanna share something with you. And she pulls out this folded up little tiny yellow sheet of paper. And she starts to read this checklist to me, right? On the sheet of paper, I can see it. It's like bullet points of just stuff. And she starts to read it all to me. And as she reads, I realize this is like a list of all the things she's done in her life that she's like pretty ashamed of or that she thinks she has done wrong or whatever. This almost like a confession moment, which she didn't need to do. I didn't understand what was happening. And I was still trying to figure out like, what is this? Like, why are we here? And then at the very end of the meeting, I, you know, at the very end of that moment, I suddenly realized, cause she made it abundantly clear. She looked up to me and she goes, so you see, Ryan, I have done a ton of things. These are all the things that I've done in my life that make me a bad person and unworthy to go to or be a part of a church. And so I needed to come and I needed to ask you, would you allow me to attend CASAS? Which, by the way, if anybody ever has that thought or feeling, good to have you. Like, you don't, you don't have to come and read the list to me. In fact, think of what she just did. That was pretty extraordinary, right? Like, can you imagine the amount of courage it would take to actually, and the tenacity it would take to sit down with a pastor or a leader and be like, I want to read this all to you? Like, how many of you guys are signing up for that? No, it's crazy. Like, that, that's a lot of courage, but she didn't see it that way. She didn't feel that at all. For her, she'd gotten on this roller coaster called shame and now it was taking her for a ride. There's another moment I was sitting across the table from a, a young man who was in his senior year of high school. I think he was like 17 years old and he was really talented. Uh, he's super popular, he's a good looking dude. Like people are, like he's just, he's one of those people that you look at and you're like, that guy's going somewhere. And he was an amazing athlete. And so everyone wanted to know where he was gonna go to college. And so 
It's, they, and the reason why is because he had recruiters from colleges coming to try to recruit him to go to their school. Like this was an exciting, he was very talented in the sport that he played. So I'm sitting across the table from him and I didn't know what to talk about. So I was just like, hey, you must really love the sport that you play because you're pretty amazing, man. And he got kind of weird and his face looked different. I don't know how to explain it. And he just looked at me and he was like, yeah, I really love it like that. And I didn't believe him at all when he said that. And I know like I should have just let that piece go, but something compelled me to just look at him and go, you don't actually love playing, do you? And his face sunk down a little bit. And he said, you know, I've been playing for a long time. It's never really been an option not to. He goes, my dad's dream was to have a kid that, you know, played in college like my dad did, but ultimately he's hoping that maybe I could go pro or something like that. And so quitting or not playing has never really been an option for me. And so I tried to just change the tenor of the conversation. I looked at him and I said, well, that's your dad's dream. That's, and that makes sense. I get that for you. But is there, what's your dream? What's something you'd love to do? And then he got a big smile on his face and he said, I want to be a writer. I'd love to be a writer. And I said, well, have you ever considered having a conversation with your parents about that? You know, like maybe, I don't know, you might be surprised depending on how you go about it or sit down and talk with them. Like you could have a conversation and all of a sudden smile leaves his face immediately again. And he looks back at me and he says, I'd rather be a miserable athlete than a failure to my dad. And the conversation was over at that point. That was the end. See, at some point in time, he'd gotten on a roller coaster called shame and it had taken him for a ride. He was still on the ride. I don't even know if he was fully aware of it or not. I, I wanna share this with you because I think these stories are more, I have hundreds of these stories. I do. I wish these were anomalies. I wish I could be like, man, I rarely ever talk about this, but it feels like we should get into it. This is not the case. I have this conversation every week. I have this conversation all of the time. This is so normative, so prevalent all around. Shame is everywhere, you guys. And it's so easy to get on that roller coaster without even realizing it. For some of us in the room, it's like the most comfortable seat that we know because we've just sat in it. We're used to it. We get it. We know what it's like. And yet it's really damaging. You know, shame's not just damaging to your own like physical everyday life. It's also it's also damaging and has a massively negative impact on your spiritual life as well. Shame can cause us to hide from God. That's one of the very first stories you see in the Bible is Adam and Eve suddenly feel like something's wrong with them and they go hide in the bushes. And we always think it's because God can't be near them. But what do you see in the story? God actually goes in pursuit of them and he says, where are you? They're hiding from him, right? Shame can cause us to actually hide from God, hide from who he's made us to be, hide from the story that we hold about what that even means. Shame can cause us to miss what God has for us because we don't believe we're the kinds of people who can live in it or deserve it or should or can, or we believe we're disqualified or unworthy somehow. And so we, we read nice verses in the Bible, but we're cut off from that whole thing in our heads and our hearts, and we don't know what to do with it. Shame can cause us to fill with resentment, carry enough shame, and it's like a burden on your back. You can start to actually resent other people and miss the fact that they're your opportunity to love, which is a really big deal from Christ, right? Like this is one of the bigger things in the Bible and shame can prevent us from doing that. So you see, shame is this really big deal. It's not just something that, that impacts us a little bit. This is a broad, wide reaching impact in our lives. So I thought we should talk about it today. And I wanted to take a moment to be really clear regarding what shame is and what shame isn't. Because what I've, what I've started to realize is that when I talk about this, everybody might nod our heads. We all know the word shame, but we might think about it differently. So I just wanted to like, level the room out, so to speak, put us all in the same playing field to go like, this is what I mean when I'm talking about this idea of shame. And so I want to read you the Oxford Dictionary definition of shame. And I also want to read the Oxford Dictionary definition of guilt, because I want you to just see these two things side by side. Here's what it says about shame. Shame is a painful feeling 
of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. There's a lot of words, so I'll say it again. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Oxford Dictionary Definition of Shame. Now, let me go to guilt, right? Here's how they would define guilt. Guilt is a feeling of having done wrong or failed in an obligation. Do you hear how close those definitions are together? They're different, but do you hear how it'd be really easy to conflate or join the two and get them kind of confused with one another? So I wanna clarify with this. Let me do this in terms of the idea of when you do something wrong, right? Shame doesn't always have to be about doing something wrong, but let's use it as an example. So guilt is when you do something wrong and you feel bad about what you have done. So guilt might be that you regret what it is that you have done. Guilt might be that I feel bad that I hurt somebody, that I did something wrong, that I, something was there. Guilt is a normal human emotion. Now, don't get me wrong. If you feel too much guilt for too long, that can become pretty problematic. But as far as it goes, guilt's pretty normal, right? If you, if you go and you walk up to the stage right now and you punch me in the face, I hope you feel a little guilty about that. I want you to have a little regret that you're not gonna do that again. That's okay, like, because this is how we adjust and adapt our behavior. Guilt's pretty normal in that particular regard. It, it can be okay. Shame, on the other hand, is something else. See, guilt is when you do something wrong and you feel bad about it. Shame is when you do something wrong and you begin to believe that you are bad. Do you see the difference? Shame is when you do something wrong and now you believe who you are must be wrong. That's shame. Guilt is attached to what you do or didn't do. Shame is when you come to ascribe something to who you now are. And that's what makes it so dangerous. That's what makes it so complicated because shame causes us, because it's who we now are, it's how we see ourselves, it causes us to live out of the story of shame, which is a very different story than who you are in Jesus Christ, is it not? I mean, really, if I would just ask each of you, I want you to think of who you are in Jesus Christ and the kind of story, the kind of life that that's gonna create. And then if I say, cool, now hold that. I also wanna ask you to think about who you are in shame and the kind of life that, life that that's gonna create. Are those the same life, you guys? Is that gonna create the same? See, these are very different storylines for life. These are very different outcomes. And, and by the way, you don't have to have done anything wrong either. It's not that you have to have committed some horrible mistake. This is why the Oxford Dictionary definition includes the word foolish. Maybe you just think you're foolish or ridiculous or unworthy or unloved, right? Maybe you've done something and somebody has been telling you over and over again, you're less than, you're not enough, you're not this. And you just believe that's who I now am. Right? This is where we, how we carry shame. It doesn't just have to be that you've done something wrong. It could be that you're foolish or unacceptable. You know, there's a famous shame researcher these days. Her name is Brene Brown. Uh, she phrases her definition this way. She says, shame is the intense and painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed. And therefore, here's the shame part, therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. That somehow something about who we are and what we are is disqualified, cut off, unworthy of acceptance and belonging. So you see, friends, when I sat in my office that day and that gentleman sat with me as his marriage was coming to a close and he looked at me or looked at the ground, I should say, and said, I just why am I not enough, right? That was shame speaking in that particular moment in his life. When that woman finally looked me in the eye and she said, I've done a lot of things that make me a bad person and so I'm unfit to come to a church, that was Shame speaking that particular day in my office. When the student looked at me and he said, better to be unhappy or miserable as an athlete than to be a failure to my dad. That was shame speaking. 
that day in my office. And the question that I wanna ask you is friends, where does shame speak in your life? It's a very common roller coaster that so many of us know what it is to get on that particular ride. When you, were, when you think about your own life, where does shame speak in your life? And maybe for you, when you think about this, shame is never something that's articulated out loud, right? When you think of the word spoken, but it's this thing that just exists inside of you. It's not the voice that comes out of you or to you. It's the thing that, it's the voice inside of your head and your own heart that tells you who you now are and who you aren't. What role, this is the question I want you to rest with, what role does shame play in your life? See, that's a big question. Here's what I don't want you to do. If you come to an answer to that question, you start to to bring some awareness to that particular piece. I don't want you to then be ashamed that you feel shame. That's a horrible spiral you can't get out of. Could you feel that? Not that, I just want you to bring that piece into awareness because as we go to talk about it today, I just think that might be the area in your life where there's an opportunity to tell a different story. That's all where there's an opportunity to allow a different voice to make its way and to tell a different story about who you are and where your life might be headed. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter two. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. There's a passage in Romans 12 that I love and I just read it all the time. There's a passage in Colossians two that I love uh, and we get to read that one today. I'm kind of excited. Um, It's written by Paul. And it has a lot to do with shame. It, it really does. Uh, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Colossae. And this is a unique church. It has Jews and Greeks within it. It's in a primarily Greek demographic, meaning this is not an area where it's like, man, they've just had a historic, powerful presence of Judaism and Bible reading and, and you know, like tradition following people in this area. This is one of those areas that's got a lot of Greek people in it. And so a lot of these Greek people are coming to believe in God for the very first time and they're becoming a part of the church. And that's a really big deal. At the same time, there's some Jewish people that are in the church too. And they've grown up Jewish. So they've been reading the Old Testament for a very long time, memorizing much of the, what's called the Old Testament law, the first several books of the Bible and the rules and the implications and the verses and the things to follow. They had walked out a traditional calendar based on this. So the festivals that they celebrated throughout their year were designed to tie them back into the scriptures because of who God was and what God has done for them as a people. And, and even then beyond that, they had these familiarities with things like angels or demons or the spiritual realm or whatever all of that stuff might be they were more fluent in that. They had that experience, that tradition. And now they're coming up with Greek people who know none of this stuff. They've never read a Bible in their life. They don't know any of the texts. Like they, they don't have any of these traditions. Their, their holidays aren't based on any of that same type of stuff, right? It, it's completely different. And they're existing in the same church. And what's happening in the church is that some of the Christian believers that were Jewish, right? Some of these, these more spiritual, so to speak, people are looking down on these other Christians that are there and they're starting to judge them and look down upon them. And so you have people in the church that are feeling shame and they're feeling labeled and they're feeling less than and insecure about whatever all that is. And then you have people that have been there for a long time and Paul's actually writing to address some of that tension. That makes it a really good passage when we go to talk about shame here today for us to learn some things. And I just wanted you to know that. I want us to begin at Colossians chapter two, verse eight. Paul says this, He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, this is the only place to my understanding in the New Testament where the Greek word for philosophy is used. I think it's the only place. Uh, There's derivatives of it that mean other things, but where the Greek word for philosophy is actually used. You know, when I was growing up and somebody would teach this passage, 
or, and I'd hear it, it'd be like, you know, so let's make sure no one takes you captive by philosophy. Everybody always told me, this is like when you get into higher education and suddenly you're hearing about like philosophy and other ideals and, I, and rules and different things. And don't let yourself be led astray by that. Hold fast to like what you know the Bible has to say. This is what this was always taught to me. But that's actually not their context here. Think about it. It really isn't. When you think of philosophy, maybe you're like me, I think of uh, old guys in Greek robes like Aristotle, right? Plato, Socrates. These are who I think of. I know there's a lot more philosophers throughout the ages, but like that's where my mind goes. I think of those people. But I want you to realize this word for philosophy, even though it's only used in the New Testament once here, it's actually used in a broader context in classical Greek. And it's a very positive word. This isn't negative. When the Pharisees, a very prominent group in Jesus' era, who was dedicated to following the Bible and reading and memorizing and understanding and living it out. When the Pharisees referred to the way they thought about God and their religion and how they did all of this, they referred to it as a philosophy in that Greek word. When the Sadducees referred to themselves, these are guys who were the priests in the temple in Jesus' era and time, Right? well-to-do, often affluent people, priests in the temple, very religious. They referred to it as a philosophy. Josephus, one of the most famous historians, refers to both of those things as a philosophy. So this word isn't always used in a negative way. It's actually a very positive word. It just means a system of thought. And I want you to know that. The other thing that I want to reference here for clarity's sake, how many of you thought it was weird when you read Elemental Spirits? I don't know when the last time you had a conversation about good old elemental spirits was. For me, it's been a minute. I don't talk about this very often. And so there can be some confusing about, or confusion about what does that mean? If you're confused, I want you to jump down to verse 20 and it'll just explain what that means. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Paul says, there's that word again. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were all religious rules and things that they were arguing over in the church right? Referring to things that all parishes are used according to human precepts and teaching. All it's talking about is human principles and rules and things that have been tacked on to form a religion, larger religious system, right? Here's the point. If you're lost, it's okay. Here's the point. Paul is saying, you know, you know guys, in life, you're going to have people who look down on you. In life, you're going to have people that maybe you look and you're like, they're smarter than me. They're better than me. They're more educated than me. And maybe some of that's true, or maybe you've just come to believe that's true. In life, you're gonna have people that are way more familiar with the Bible than you, way more familiar with passages than you, have better theological arguments than you. In your life, you're gonna have people who can argue all of those things and formulate systemic thoughts and stuff better than you. In your life, you're gonna have people who approach the Bible and approach religion in such a specific way that they look at you and say, if you don't do these things, you are a bad person. And some of that may have to do with the Bible verses and things that they're reading, but at times it may not actually be a reflection of Christ. What Paul's getting at here is like, there's gonna be a lot of things, a lot of voices, a lot of stuff that comes your way. If it isn't anchored in Christ, slow down. If it isn't anchored in Christ, pause. Ask more questions. And then he continues to talk where he essentially says, and don't let that heap shame upon you. Recognize who you are. I'm gonna read you a passage, the rest of this passage, and it's gonna get really long. I'm just acknowledging that. Some of you guys are gonna go, I got lost like two verses ago, Ryan. And I know that, that's okay. I wanna read the whole chunk to you though, because what you're gonna see is Paul starts repeating something over and over and over again. In fact, he repeats two things. I'm gonna do my best to read those with emphasis. I want you to see them as we go. So if you get lost and you're like, wait, it's okay, I get it. Just keep listening for that larger piece here. Beginning at verse nine, he says, for 
In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off uh, the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, period. It's the end of the passage. Here's a principle to help you when you go to read your Bibles and you're not here, we're not walking through these things together. When you're reading your Bible and the author keeps saying the same phrase or the same words over and over again, it's a cause to slow down and pay attention to that and realize there's this kind of emphasis that's being drawn in here because there's something that's really important for us to catch. There's something that the author does not want us to miss. Paul says, in him, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. In Christ, he is the clearest picture of the invisible God that you have. If you ever wonder what God looks like, look no further than the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the clearest picture, the fullness of God in bodily form. Jesus is what God looks like and is like. And then he goes on, he says, and in him, in that Christ, you who were uncircumcised, you were circumcised. That's what he says. Now, if that's lost on you, you're like, okay, this is getting weird because you're unfamiliar with this. All this means is there's a classic Jewish custom where the person would be circumcised as a sign of the promise to God. And this basically meant they had a place with God. They had a promised relationship with God. And this was a signal of this. And Paul's saying, in Christ, so do you. In Christ, you are in him and with him and have belonging and value. You are with and in. This is what he's saying. In him, you have this. And then he goes on. He says, but you've been buried with him in baptism. Whatever mistakes that perhaps you've made, whatever residue from life exists on you in a way that you're just like, I don't like who I was or where I was or even the way that I was walking isn't who I now wanna be or the things I wanna change or whatever that might be. He's saying that's all been buried in baptism in such a way that you're new. You're new, you've got new life in Christ. And yes, there's hardness and things that happen in life, but that's not who you now are right? You can live a different story. It's available. We are made alive together, Paul says, with him. Jesus is with you and you're made alive with him. He's alive in you and through you and with you. Think of what he's saying. You are not dead and decaying. You're alive and growing. You are not old news. You are new life. He's telling us who we are, how we look at ourselves, right? Christ is alive in you. And some of the shame and the things that we carry never need to be carried by us. Why? Because they're nailed to a cross once and for all. It's all canceled out. This is what Paul's getting at. So we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to do that. We can live the new storyline. We don't have to give on the same old ride in him, with him. And then he ends it by saying he has triumphed over the religious systems and rulers and political systems and rulers that thought that they could shame you into looking a certain way or acting a certain way. It's not based on who God created you to be, this person and uniqueness that you are, this life in him and with him. And what he's saying is hold on to that and don't sell yourself short for anything. Don't let go of your identity and let someone else tell you a different story. Friends, your story, your personhood, your identity and your worth and value as a human is in him and with him. 
And this is what Paul's reminding this early group of Greek believers about is they're standing in a church where they're getting looked down upon at different times by other people in the church and they're being told to follow certain things or do certain things and they're confused by it. Wouldn't that be powerful to have heard if you were them? Can you imagine when they read this letter for the first time? And they're like, oh, I knew that was Christ. (laughs) Right, that's kind of thing I wonder if they thought. I knew that that's who Christ was. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for centering me back in. And I think it's powerful for us too, especially when we talk about this idea of shame here today, right? What Paul so articulately and clearly uh, talks about is that, that, man, this is really important for our lives, that we anchor ourselves in him, that we have this story of who we are that is in him and with him. And I think that's a really powerful thing when it comes to this idea of getting on or getting off that shame roller coaster. See, some of us will carry shame in our lives because of what it is we have done or what it is that we haven't done, right? We do. There's just gonna have moments for some of us where we look at this. Some of you already feel that now. See, some of us are gonna carry shame because we made a mistake at one point or we did something that we regret or we didn't do something and that we should have and we regret that. We made a mistake. And Paul acknowledges this. He goes, you know, you were dead in your transgressions. Like, yes, we all make mistakes. Yes, there's things. And you thought like maybe God didn't have a seat for you after all, but God not only made you alive, he... He made you in him and set a place for you with him that you might continue to walk this life out knowing that you actually are are not alone. The God of the universe is with you and for you and who you are is anchored in him, in his story, in a powerful kind of way. There's a whole new story for you to live with him. And I think it's easy to let shame rob us of that sometimes. You know, when I was 15 years old, I took a chemistry class. Um, and I liked chemistry. It may not surprise some of you guys. I liked experiments at that point in time and chemistry was chock full of them. And so I remember one particular experiment one day came in and we got to mix 0.1 grams of iodine tablets with 0.1 grams of zinc powder and then mix that together in a jar. And then we took a dropper of water and we added the drop of water and it created a chemical reaction, which produced a purple gas that would start pouring out of this little glass jar that we had. And we did that under the hood vent in the chemistry lab so that it would suck up all the gas. And that was the experiment. And I remember the first time I saw the purple gas coming out of the the little beaker thing that we were using that day, I I had one singular thought. And I was like, this would make a great smoke bomb prank in the cafeteria. I did. I was like, this would be great, right? Smoke bombs are expensive and this one's not. So we could do this. And so I stole chemicals. I did, I didn't have permission. I took chemicals out of the the chem lab, and I replicated the experiment. 0.1 grams of each substance, one dropper of water. I walked into the cafeteria, which everyone had lunch at the same time, like 600 people in this cafeteria, really big room at Mountain View High School. And I sat down at a table with my friends and I said, guys, I I took things from the chemistry lab. It's gonna make a little bit of smoke. It'll be funny. Like nobody make a big deal. I don't wanna get in trouble. And they're like, okay. And everybody gears up and I add the dropper of water and it starts to fizz and bubble and the smoke starts pouring out of the, the thing. And it just dissipates quickly. I, I, I didn't recognize the sheer size of the room that I was in, how big that room was and how insignificant this little moment would be. And all of my friends looked at me and they're like, Ryan, that was stupid. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, we'll go bigger. So the next day I went to my chemistry class and I got the same stuff. And this time, instead of using 0.1 grams of each substance, I took 50 grams of each substance. And instead of taking a dropper of water, I took a Sunny Delight bottle filled with water in a big jar and I assembled all of these things. That's 500 times, in case you, but anyway, so a lot. 
Was I thinking, let's multiply this by 500? No, I was just like, what would be a bigger thing? 50 feels bigger, and it was. And I walked into the cafeteria with my jar, my Sunny Delight bottle of water, and I put it down in the center of the round table with my friends, with all these people in there, and I said, nobody, nobody freak out, everybody just chill, this will be a little bigger than yesterday. And I dumped the water into it. When I dumped the water in, I was expecting to hear that same fizzing and bubbling sound, and instead it sounded like a jet engine as it began to react and react and react. And it didn't stop reacting and it just went, I mean, so loud that throughout the room, you're like, what is that sound? And purple smoke, purple gas is billowing out of this thing in the center of the table. And it's filling the room with purple smoke, except it doesn't look like smoke. What it ends up looking like is like you're wearing glasses that have purple lenses on it. So if you're standing there in the room, you just looked over and students were looking over and it just looked like purple was making their way towards them. And it was very curious. So people started to walk towards it and they put their hands in it. And I didn't realize how poisonous it was. I did. It makes iodine gas. That's not a great one. And, and so what ends up happening is I fill the cafeteria with iodine gas and people all curious start walking through it. Well, it dyes your skin yellow on contact and then you have coughing fits and it burns your lungs and it's very poisonous and it's very bad. And so kids all start coughing and yelling and then they look and they're yellow and they go into a full panic and there's a stampede out of the cafeteria as everyone is vacating the premises and I got out of Dodge. And all I could think, people have always asked me like, what were you thinking? And I'm like, I was thinking one thing. I am so in trouble. I am so in trouble. I am in so much trouble. That's all I thought. And I go to my next class and I'm just like, there's no, oh, this is bad. Like, there's no way this is going to go well. And I hear the sirens, right? As the police start driving by and the fire trucks start driving by. And then a little while later, I see men in hazmat suits running down the breezeway. And I, I am in so much trouble. And so I raise my hand and say, hey, I need to go to the front office. And they say, no, you're not allowed to go right now. We're in the middle of class. And I was like, yeah, I probably need to go though up there right now. And they said, okay. And I went up and I turned myself in. I said, yeah, it was me. You know, I, I did that. And 90 people were exposed to chemical gas that needed to be looked at for medical reasons. And if you can imagine the amount of parents and how angry they would be over all that, it was a pretty big deal. I got arrested on the spot. I did. And I got suspended from school. By the way, this was during an era of time where I think I'd make the news today. And I don't think I would have been able to continue going to the school. I'll, I didn't share this last hour. I'll share it this hour. I came back to school after my suspension was over. And my chemistry teacher, I remember walking into his class for the first time going, oh no, what's about to happen? He's like, Ryan, I should kick you out of this class, but you really have a knack for chemistry. And so I stayed. <laughs> right? I know. I remember I'm sitting up in the principal's office and the police have told me that I'm arrested. And if my parents don't come and get me, that they're going to take me. And my mom shows up at that point in time. And she doesn't really say much. She just addresses the police officers and we go and we walk back to the car. And the whole time I'm just thinking, I am in so much trouble. I am in so much trouble. And we get in the car and she finally speaks and she just looks at me and she has tears in her eyes. And she goes, Ryan, I'm so angry and I am so disappointed with you. And she goes, and you know, the hardest part about this today is you just blew your witness to an entire campus. And if you didn't grow up in church, let me tell you what that means. What that essentially means is, Ryan, these people, 
used to maybe look at you like you're Ryan Kramer, who's a Christian, Ryan Kramer, who's trying to follow Jesus, Ryan Kramer, who goes to a church, Ryan Kramer, who wants this for my life and these other pieces. And now when people look at you, what they will see is Ryan Kramer is the person who stole all the chemicals out of the chemistry lab. Ryan Kramer is the person who got arrested. Ryan Kramer is the person who poisoned all those people. And it was the very first time that my brain suddenly shifted out of, I am in so much trouble, I am in so much trouble. And I just zoomed out. And it wasn't just a moment that I was in. And I suddenly said, is this who I am now? As guilt suddenly turned into shame. Feel that? It's this weird moment. I don't know how to describe it, but you sit in this place. I remember sitting in the principal's office and freaking out, but it wasn't until I got in the car that particular day and I started to think about this in a larger sense where I was like, yeah, everyone will know me this way. Yeah, my faculty will see me this way. Yeah, my parents see me this way. When I go to church, they're gonna know about this and wonder what I was thinking. They're gonna see me this way too. And I had this thought, maybe this is who I am now. And I share this with you because this is how shame works. This is why it's insidious, you guys. Shame, when you feel it, begins to stretch out in front of you like a road that is just the life that's yours to live. Almost like now you wear the clothes and you live the life and you prove it to be true. And it just feels like that's what it is now. This is how it is. My mom took me to a church. She took me to Casas because she did not know what to do. And she was afraid of how she might handle it or not and needed some, some thoughts. And so she took me to go see my youth pastor. Parents do this, by the way, when kids, I don't know, get in a lot of trouble. They just take them and leave them with the youth pastor. I used to be a youth pastor. We don't know what we're doing, you guys. <laughs> Most youth pastors aren't even parents at that time. Like we're not better than you. But she did. She took me to Phil. Lynn, he was the youth pastor at that point and sat me down. I remember Phil's first words to me. He looked at me and he was like, what were you thinking? And I was like, well, Phil, I think that might be the problem. You know, I wasn't, th I didn't think it would be this big. I didn't think this would happen. I, I just thought it'd be this little thing. I didn't realize it was gonna be this crazy and I was gonna hurt all these people. And I didn't, I, and I had all this stuff. And I was like, I, I know that it's wrong. I'm arrested and I've got community service and all kinds of consequences and I'm suspended and so many things. I know, Phil, you know. And then he got up and he walked over and he grabbed a sheet of paper that he had already printed out for me. I guess he knew we were coming. And he said, sounds like you're gonna have a lot of time on your hands since you won't be in school. So between community service hours and just being around, I wonder if you'd be willing to study this and just read through this. And he hands me the sheet of paper and at the top of the sheet of paper, it just says, who am I in Christ? And it's this giant list of all the places and things in the Bible where it talks about our identity and our personhood anchored in Jesus Christ and what that looks like and is. And Phil looked at me and he goes, you should study it. That's who you are. At the time that was meaningful, I haven't realized how powerful that was in my life until just contemplating this very, very recently. Because you know what happened? I walked into that office thinking there was one road for my life and it was a path of shame. And then because of whatever I had done and whatever people would see me now as and whatever those things as, this is the story that I just now needed to tell because I can't overcome and it's just who I am now. And Phil very kindly in this weird way with that sheet of paper just reminded me, I'm sorry, there's another story that you can tell. And it's not just the one, there's this other story. You are in Christ and you are with Christ. I started to read lines out of that, that, uh, that worksheet or that sheet of paper. And I read, I am alive in Christ. I felt like I was dead to Christ just moments before that and cut off and separated. I read, I am forgiven in Christ. I thought this is too big, too bad, too far, right? 
I read, I am made new in Christ. And I thought, there's no coming back from this. There's no new life out of this thing. And yet this is my identity. This is who I am. I thought, I am a child of God in Christ. Moments before, my thoughts were like, why would God want a child like me in this? This is who I now am. And this, this, just walking through this, I started to realize there are two roads in front of us. And this is why I wanted to tell you this story and why I wanted to walk this out with you all today. It's because I think that for so many of us, what happens is we get on a shame roller coaster. For some of us, we experience moments in our lives where we do stupid stuff, like what I did, right? Or we make a mistake, or we do something that we shouldn't have, or that we regret, or something hard, or something bad, or we don't do something that we thought we ought to, or whatever all this stuff is. And in those moments, you can start to heap shame on yourself, where you move out of that guilt thing from, I shouldn't have done that, and you move into a place of, I'm a bad person now, or I am less than, or unacceptable, or unlovable, or insert storyline here. And you start to wear shame like a shirt you don't want to take off, or you don't know how to take off anymore, and it starts to rob you of your story, because now you suddenly think you're, you are wrong. Other times it's not that we do something wrong at all because I know not everybody would identify with that. Sometimes it's that someone in our lives has told us again and again and again that something is wrong. And so we start to just wear their words like they're our own and eventually that becomes our story too and we just live it and we see it and we don't know how to escape it. And you start to feel unlovable. You start to feel like there's a place I don't have belonging and it becomes the storyline for you. Other times it's not what we have done. It's not even what somebody else has said. It's just for reasons maybe about growing up or different things in our lives, but there's just this voice inside of us that keeps telling us that we are not enough, that we are unloved, that we are unacceptable, that we are the wrong thing. And that is shame. And in these moments, what ends up happening when they hit you as a human being, that road of shame suddenly stretches out in front of you and it becomes like a script that you can just live. It becomes like a character you can just be, you can hand it the pen of your life as it goes to write story after story, chapter after chapter of who you now become. And I think most of us don't realize that that's not the only path that's in front of us. And what Phil so graciously did with me on that particular day by handing me that sheet of papers, he reminded me that there is another story to tell and it's still there. And Phil didn't create that story for me. Jesus did and had been there all along. Phil just in his kindness said, Ryan, remember, it's actually still here for you. And it became a powerful way to let go of shame and step back into my life. Did I do that perfectly? Well, no. Otherwise I wouldn't have so many stories to tell you guys, Right? But I'm grateful for the opportunity to keep stepping in. And in the moments that I failed, in the moments that didn't work, there was always an opportunity to return to the story of Christ in me and with me. And I say that same thing for you, in you and with you. That's your story, friends. That's who you are, in you and with you. That's what Christ has declared you, in you and with you. Your identity, your worth, your value, your personhood anchored in him. That story leaves no space for shame. And that's for me, and that's for you. Shame doesn't have to steal your story. Christ came to you to steal it back. And that's a weird way of thinking about it. But what's it say? No, he, he took whatever things you're carrying around and he nailed that to a cross and said, no one else should ever have to die like this ever again, right? That's, it's there, it's gone. What does it say? He canceled the record of debt. Whatever it is that you think is too big, whatever shame you think is, needs to be held upon your back that's now yours to carry, that has been canceled as far as God goes. 
He doesn't look at it, doesn't see it. It has been canceled, that record of debt. And what does he want you to know? No, the shame doesn't belong on you. The shame belongs on all these things and moments that wanna put that on you when you are ultimately meant to be free and alive and loved in the grace of Jesus Christ. This is who you now are. And you don't have to carry it the same way. So you get to live that different story. And I want us to see that. I think this is why Paul writes, in verse 17, right? He, he gives us this whole big long list. And then what's he do? He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And by the way, no one includes you. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all religious things they argued over about what was good and what you had to follow and what made you in and what made you out and all these things. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the real meat and potatoes, it's all in Christ. It belongs to Christ. And then what's he continue? Let no one disqualify you and the passage keeps on going, right? So friends, if you wanna get off of the shame roller coaster, perhaps this is a year where you're like, I just don't wanna get on it altogether. Let who you are be anchored in Christ and know that you are in him and that you are with him. Let no one else around you be a voice that disqualifies you from being in him and from being with him and base your life on who he is and walk that out with him. That is your anchor, that is your security, that is your worth, that is your value. It is the most powerful story that you could tell and it's who you've been created to be. And I recognize if you're a person who's just really easy to get on the roller coaster of shame, it might be nice to offer just a couple of helpful things. And so I wanna close by doing that here this morning. These might help you, these might not. And so there's just different things that I wanna suggest. One thing is this, remind yourself that there's another path in Christ. Remind yourself that there's another path in Christ, right? Give yourself that reminder. Maybe for you, this is just writing down, I don't know, a, your favorite part of this passage from Colossians. And you're like, man, that one piece right there, that I needed to hear, that really resonated with me. Write it down, put it as a reminder someplace for you so that when you wake up or when you're walking through your day and you're tempted to let your, yourself and your shame and your language go that direction towards that path of shame, you're reminded of the one that's there still waiting for you, right? Maybe it's just these words, write the words, I am in Christ and with Christ and put that someplace that reminds you. Or maybe for you, it's, it's going to a friend and saying, hey, can I ask you a really big favor for me? And say, I, I'm a person who occasionally gets on a shame roller coaster and I don't always know how to get off of it. And sometimes I, I get on the ride and, and just tell them, you know, sometimes I use shame language to start seeing myself that way, but you know me, when you see me stepping back into that, can you just remind me, hey, I think that's shame talking and not you. Can I give you permission to do that? That becomes a powerful thing. Go ask somebody in your life to do that. And who knows, maybe you can do the same thing for somebody. Just make sure they asked you to do it because that gets weird. Some of us, by the way, I feel like I need to say this. You don't, we don't realize it, but we've been riding on the shame roller coaster for so long that like I said, it's like a shirt that fits that we don't know how to take off. And so can I just tell you, if that's you, this is gonna be a road ahead of you because you're gonna find yourself going, okay, I wanna take this off, but it's not a magic trick. And you're like, I'm good now. You're gonna find another moment happens where somebody says, but how could you? Or you're gonna find another moment where somebody says, but I don't agree with you and you're bad. And another moment where somebody does something else and all of a sudden you wanna put the shirt back on, give yourself some grace and just recognize you might slip up. You've been practicing wearing it for a very long time. It might take some practice to get used to not wearing it again. But just keep reminding yourself that story's there. That road, there's a different road in front of me to walk. I don't have to choose the one. 
And then lastly, and I wanna leave us with this, recognize the choice you have. I think this was the most powerful thing for me and I think that's why I just am offering it to you in the same way. For me, it was so powerful to suddenly realize this road that stretched out in front of me of all the ways that other people would see me and all the ways that I just need to see myself and this is just how it is now and I can't escape it and that's mine to simply bear and live. The most powerful thing about that was suddenly to realize that's not the only story that I can live out. That's not the only path in front of me. There's a different one. And I found myself with a choice. Do I want shame to write my book? Do I want shame to be my path? Or do I want it to be that I'm in Christ and with Christ and see where Jesus wants to take me still? Does that get me to escape anything that I, no, there were so many natural consequences that I had and still have out of that incident, you guys. I don't get to escape all of that. I just don't get to let it tell my story. Do you see how powerful that is though? That is massive. And that's the thing I want for you guys. Recognize friends, there is a choice that's in front of you. You don't have to choose that same path. There is this path that is in Christ and with Christ because that is who you are. Friends, we are washed new as Paul would say, but we still have flaws and shortcomings. We are loved, we are accepted, we are forgiven but we're still bound to make mistakes, right? We have powerful stories to tell with our lives and the love of Christ, and yet we're still bound to lose our way at different points in our life. It's just part of being a human. And in those moments when you do, shame will always be there with a road stretching out in front of you and a pen to write your story. But you don't have to choose it. There's a God who loves you, who sees you, who knows you. There's a God who calls you his child, calls you his beloved. There's a God who says you are new. You are not dead, but you are alive. You are anchored. And there's a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to be the ultimate symbol of his love for you, that he would live and die and rise again and say, who's coming with me? And so in the moments when you're tempted to choose that other story, may you know this, you friends are accepted. You friends are loved and you friends are free. And that is my prayer for us all this next year. We bow your heads and pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for the profound way that you love us. Thank you for the profound way that you anchor us. And I thank you that no story is ever finished until you say so. And so God, if there are people in this room right now, Lord, that are struggling under the weight of shame, I just pray that you would lift it. If there are people in this room that are carrying things, God, that belong left back with the cross, I pray that they would release it, Lord, and feel your love and your nearness and your peace. God, if there are people that feel like it's not okay to be them and that they need to be less than who you've made them to be, I pray for boldness and clarity and love and grace to empower them. God, for us all, may we settle not for shame, but for you. May your grace and love and goodness guide us forward. We ask for courage. We ask for guidance. And we thank you that we get to do this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.